Please turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 58. We will look at the first 12 verses this week. And on the insert, I have the verses I'll read in a moment, just five of these verses to begin with. So have your Bible open to Isaiah 58, either your electronic version or your hard copy, or if you need the Pew Bible, they're, they're there for you, page 616, thereabouts, maybe 617, um, for Isaiah 58. In this passage, God, through the prophet Isaiah, calls out the people of God concerning fake worship. It's surface level at best. It's fake. He exposes it. And this is part of a a series of exposures that the prophet is bringing to the people of God. He has brought them through the course of his ministry uh, through some real real clarity about what's happened. Uh, The The people of God have turned away from their God, and he calls them out on this. He calls the nations out on their sin. But he also promises there's a remedy for this. This is the servant, the faithful servant, unlike unfaithful Israel, the faithful one, the servant himself, Messiah, would pay for their sins. He would take away their, their eternal punishment. He would even provide for some temporal relief as they sought refuge in him. So the message is clear for those who will hear it that they need to seek refuge in their saving God through his Messiah. The problem is there is still discipline to be had. Uh, Things have gone a long way and the mass of the nation was still uh, thumbing their nose at God. In fact, we saw last week how they were basically uh, forming alliances with other nations and city-states to try to stay afloat as long as they could as Babylon was closing in, exile was near, and they were even erecting Uh, places of worship among the pagan gods. I mean, they were uh, a complete mess spiritually. And so in the midst of this, they were still offering certain tokens of worship to Jehovah. Um, And one of these tokens was a contrived fast, a fast beyond what the biblical record called for them to do, Um, a, a fast that they thought God would be leveraged into having to bless them if they did it. And so God sees this act of external worship or devotion, and he speaks to this, and he confronts this. Now, before we go further, and as to how we would apply such a thing, anytime you read in the scripture about insincere worship or fake worship, it should catch our attention. And we think about what we do formally on a Sunday. I mean, it'd be easy to talk just about how we could go through the motions, and that would be fake worship. Uh, But this is much worse than that, and it's something we could fall into. Um, God calls us to total worship. Um, I hope we understand that as redeemed people. So the world in its sin um, has God send a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior, and he he saves us by the work on the cross he does for us. We're redeemed as we rest on his finished work. But recognize God's bigger picture is that the world has fallen, it's broken, it's messed up. He saves us so that we might give him proper worship Proper devotion, proper glory. That's the point of salvation. To save us so we could do what we were created to do before sin came, which is glorify God. So he saves us to worship. That's not just a worship service. That's not just the acts of worship that we might do. Um, That's the whole of our life as a living sacrifice. And one of the main ways that he brings glory to himself through his redeemed people 
is by his redeemed people reaching out to those who are in need in their midst, those outside, and he does so to show his light even further to bring more people into right relationship with him so that they might glorify him. Um, We'll see how this plays out in this text, but I give it as an introduction, and I'll return to it as we close. Here now as I read God's word, this is Isaiah chapter 58. I'm going to read verse 4 down to verse 8 to begin, but we will look at verses 1 through 12. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is, is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I chose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? And not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then, then shall your light break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, last week uh, we were confronted with our temptation to be self-righteous when we consider uh, the sins of your people being exposed. This week, we are challenged to be honest about our devotion to you, about our worship, the whole of our worship. Lord, we do not want to be hypocrites and liars about our love for you. Yet we do struggle at times to move past surface-level worship, to move past our own needs, the things that are on our minds or immediately or acutely aware to us. Lord, give us a deep love, a deep love for you and the grace shown to us that translates to a genuine compassion and mercy to others that is a worship act to you. Please send your spirit to illumine your word that we might be transformed and our desire to glorify you will grow. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the commentators uh, that I read on Isaiah uh, quoted another one named James Smart who said, one of the unique features of biblical faith is that there is no genuine relation with God that is not at the same time a relation with the brother. Now I want to warn us, especially in our own environment, and this text comes to the people of God across all sorts of of national situations, but the warning to us, I think, especially living in suburban America, a very conservative area, uh, Christians, don't let whatever you think of the government's use of your tax dollars for welfare have anything to do with what we're talking about here. We're talking about Jesus here and what he wants us to do. It does not matter what the government does. It does not matter what the world out there says. It matters what our Lord says should be true of us. So let no thoughts of those things creep in to what our God commands us as saved people. That's what he tells us. That's what he says to the people of God in a situation different than ours, worse than ours in most cases. Jesus repeats it against the Roman government. He still wants his people to worship him in a way that evidences total restoration. It has to start with the forgiveness of our sins. There is no other restoration that can happen without that beginning. 
That is the clear message of Isaiah. That's the clear message of Jesus. And the clear connect is that we won't only care about ourselves, we'll care about the needs of everybody. Because we want to see this whole world restored unto worship to him. And it won't happen until he comes again in finality. But in the meantime, he gives his people a commission. In fact, God saves us so that we will worship him. And when we worship him and glorify him, we will be so enthralled with what he cares about that we will naturally want to find ways to help people in their needs. It really should be the test for our tr- the truth of our worship. Because if all we do is come here Sunday and go through a liturgy, say prayers, go through rites and rituals, and we walk out and we're unchanged, then we're fakes and we're liars. That is not what I believe we are. I think God's redeemed us. He's called us. He's given us a sense of compassion for people in our midst who are suffering, those in our community who are suffering, and now we're in a globalized situation where we can know the suffering of others, and we can, to the degree we can, help. And we should want to. That should be an offshoot of people who are saved. That's what I think the drumbeat of the prophet is, which is really the heart of God for his people to hear. In fact, it's, a, it's an amazing uh, study when you look at how often Jesus quotes Isaiah. Have you noticed that if you think back on your reading? Um, one of the first times it appears is in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. Listen to what he says and what Jesus accents. Remember, Jesus has come to lay himself down as a sacrifice. That's the reason for his being. That's the prime driving mission of his earthly ministry. But in so doing, he doesn't leave out the whole of what he is looking to do and accomplish in his ministry. So, he's in the synagogue, and they're reading the scripture. Jesus has not yet revealed himself as the Messiah, on the large, at least in a public way. It's early in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 4, Jesus went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And how dramatic it would be with a big, a big parchment scroll that would be thick. He gets the scroll. Jesus gets the scroll. And he unravels it. And it says he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This is amazing. God the Son finding the place in the scroll uh, that prophesied about him 700 years ago. And in the hearing of the people reads this. This is our Lord saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, it says, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he spoke apparently from where he was standing or sitting. And he began to say to them, today... This scripture has been, fu- been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I want you to hear this. Jesus came. He died on the cross. We trust in that. That's how we know we are right with God. And what does Jesus say he came to do? This is, this is the offshoot of that. To make an impact in the world for those who are hurting because of what sin has done in this world. Either because something they've done or something that has left a shortfall or pain or death or loss that comes upon people. Whatever it may be. It's his It is his mission to relieve us of the eternal deserts for our sins. And then in the meantime, to further proclaim that message, he has come to do these things. And you know, he literally does many of these things as he walks the earth in these next three years. But then when he leaves and he sends his spirit to his people, we are his hands and feet to do these things, just in the order he did them. Proclaim the message of the gospel, the good news of salvation through Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and to show compassion to mankind who is so suffering under sin. And these things go together. It's not an either or. 
the prime message is forgiveness of sins. The prime application is our love for people who are also hurting and downcast under their sin, ultimately. The problem is some of these physical things make it difficult to hear the message of salvation. We'll see that more as we come uh, through this text together. Again, one of the unique features of biblical faith is there is no genuine relation with God that is not at the same time a relation with the brother. We come to the passage and see the people. They have basically invented a certain fast. It's not a fast that God, that we can find in the Old Testament anywhere. By the words of the prophets, you can tell that he's challenging their contriving of this special fast. It's not to say that individuals can't fast um, in their private devotion to God or groups do so. That's more outlined actually in the New Testament. Um, But as a corporate people, they were fasting in a way that they thought would cause God to have to respond to them. That's not what fasting is. Fasting is a humbling of oneself by by denying oneself of something so that in those hunger pangs or whatever those feelings are when you don't have what you're fasting from, um, you think of God and his sustenance and your devotion to God is deepened that way. It's very personal. It's very humbling. It's very practical. It puts us in a better spot to receive God's commands. But they were fasting to get something from God. They wanted blessing from him and he saw right through it. And here's the thing. We're going to talk about fasting. That's what's dealt with here. But it could be any outward form of of worship that we might give. It could be our corporate worship setting when we read readings, when we pray prayers, when we sing, whatever it might be. It could be something you do privately. Um, Fill in the blank. The point is the same. Occasional religious displays done with the expectation that because I'm doing this, God needs to give me something that misses the deep essence of worshiping God. Because worship involves all of life. This gathering is like the high point of a bunch of worshipers who have been offering their every minute to God in worship. Now this is a high point where we pause and sing directly to our God. We respond to him, we contemplate his salvation again, we receive the means of his grace and we grow so that we can be the worshipers that we, when we go out from here. We don't stop worshiping when we go out from here. It continues in everything we do and every act that we make. Now look at the text. It kind of builds, um, these points build from the shorter to the longer. The first point you'll see in the first two verses is the prophet, um, by God's prompting, uh, addressing the people and their fake worship. Uh, and so the first step for us in these first two verses as we read them would be to, take a, to do a heart check, a, a personal heart check. And I've said a bunch of things already that I hope have been used to make you start thinking personally about your own devotion. Uh, because that's what we're talking about, our devotion to God, our worship of God, our ability to glorify God. What are these things? Well, the first step is to do a personal heart check. Where is your devotion? Verse 1 starts, cry aloud, do not hold back, Isaiah. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. God really wants him to address the people of God with this statement. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. So he doesn't want um, Isaiah, on this point especially, because it's about devotion. It's about worship. It's important. I mean, everything's important, but this is really important because it's, it's ultimately, when you worship, you believe something about why you're doing it. And so they were believing the wrong thing, and so he really needed to address this. It was so forming in their life. He describes them um, this way, with two key words that really give us an understanding of the angle he's coming at. Verse 2. Yet they seek me daily, his people, that is, and delight to know my ways. And here's the key. As if they were a nation that did righteousness, 
So he's talking about them doing outward activities that did not reveal an inward reality. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgments of their gods. In other words, they are a nation that did unrighteousness and did forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. So he's calling them out on their fakeness. So these first two verses should catch us and we should... Yes, Lord, these are the ways in which I'm not genuine, or these are the ways in which I'm selfish about this, or these are the ways in which I need more of your passion for what you're passionate about. I rest in your salvation, and I want to give my life as a sacrifice and worship to you. Lord, what should I do? What should we do? That's the response we should have when we read this confrontation of the people of God. Where is our true devotion? Well, in the next verses, we find out where their true devotion is. In fact, What we learn from verses 3 down to verse 5 is the true motivation of a worshiper is not revealed by these outward religious acts we're talking about. It's not that they're not important, but there's something more important under the surface. The true motivation of a worshiper is not revealed by any outward display, but rather our actions toward others. So the test for the devotion or the level of our devotion comes from what we do outside of the place Worship is the high point, we're talking about formal worship, of a congregation or a people who see the whole of their life is under Lord Jesus, under what he commands us to do. That's what tells us about the authenticity of what happens here. Otherwise, it's just a show here. It's really just for us to come in and check in. I mean, I remember going to church for a long time in my life, and that's why I went to church. I felt like I kind of would do whatever during the week to whomever I wanted to, however as nice or mean or whatever, As long as I went to church every week, and in the church I went in, I did a few other rites and rituals they they prescribed, I would be all right with God. That's the approach many people have. But in reality, this gathering here is really the culmination of a life of worship. And it's a checkpoint to get grounded again in the gospel, strengthened again by what we know we've been saved from and to. I mean, that's the point of why we come into this place. It's not to to check off a box so that God doesn't zap me. That's not it at all. But that's the way they were treating God. And so look at verse 3. You can see the people are upset by what Isaiah declares to them. Verse 3. Why have we fasted? Did you, didn't you see it, God? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Wait a minute, wait a minute, God. What are you talking about here? You're, you're saying we're disingenuous. Did you not see what we did? Can you not tell that we're devoted to you, God? It's, it's almost like the child who, who gets busted in something legit, and then they say, yeah, but didn't you see the good things I did? I mean, I took out the garbage, I washed the dishes, I did this. I, so what if I didn't? I mean, it's kind of that uh, very immature kind of sense of arguing a case. But didn't you see us fast, Lord? But look what God says about their fast. Behold, the second part of verse 3 now. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. We don't know specifically what this means, but people were still in their midst, while they were supposed to be doing an act of worship to God, people were being um, unjustly treated. They were oppressed in some way that, in which they were suffering. Now we can gather what this might have looked like in this time period. Um, there was a, a vast caste system of people in the days of the switch over to Babylon. It was always how it was in between these different kingdoms. And there were always people lost in the poverty shuffle. It was bad. And so here are the people of God who are only concerning themselves with themselves, and then here they are fasting and they're doing these religious rites and rituals but right under their nose. Even their workers, either people employed by them or people in their midst, are going without something or they're being oppressed by something else, and they just go on as if that doesn't exist. 
in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You're, you're, you're looking for something for yourself out of this fast, and all the while there's oppression right under your nose. And then look what happens in the fast to make it worse. I mean, brothers and sisters, the things that we do with the, think we do with devotion that would impress God, they're, they're not impressive. The only reason why God is pleased by any of it is when it's through Christ, when it's reaction and appreciation for his grace. It's not that the thing we do in worship is so grand and great to the God of the universe who created all beauty. But here they think this fast should really impress. Look what happens, verse 4. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Do you understand what he's saying? I think it's clear. They have a day fast that they prescribe. They're hungry. They're agitated. By the end of the day, they're fighting each other. I mean, the fast that was supposed to be a holy offering unto God of some sort actually ends up being a display, a fight, a brawl breaks out. And then look what he says in verse 4, the second part. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. I I mean, get real people is what he's saying. You think this fast is something that impresses God Almighty? Uh, Not at all. In fact, you fight by the end of the thing. You're so focused on yourself and your own pleasures. This worship act has nothing to do with an internal reality. It has nothing to do with devotion to God. It's all about getting something for themselves. Verse 5 further condemns this contrived fast that they had made up. Is such the fast that I choose? This thing you're doing, do you think this is what I chose, God says? A day for a person to humble himself? A day? I think he's trying to say it, just a day to humble yourself. If you humble yourself for one day, go worship all your pagan gods the other day, uh, alliances with all these other pagan kings that you trust more than me in other days, oh, but for a day, you're going to fast. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? That gives us indication this was a contrived fast. This was not something prescribed by scripture. Um, they had a certain way they bowed down their head And there was also a certain thing they did to bring discomfort to themselves, maybe to stay awake, to stay focused, to punish themselves so God would be impressed. And that was uh, to spread sackcloth, which is almost like a rough burlap type material. You've heard in scripture where people would put sackcloth on when they're in mourning. It would allow, it would keep them awake. It would keep them aware. It would keep them at a certain level of discomfort to just focus on their mourning or on their praying or whatever. So they laid the sackcloth down and they did it under ashes and not soft ashes. It would have been those those burned up, almost look like charcoal, sharp-edged little small pieces and pebbles underneath the sackcloth, and they would lay on that for discomfort's sake, almost to self-abase them. It's self-abasement. And, and God's saying, you think this is a fast that I have prescribed? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? The true motivation of a worshiper is not revealed by these forms, these things they do. The way in which they, that's not, that's not what really shows the heart of a worshiper. Genuine worship involves the whole of our lives. That's the point. The whole of our lives devoted to what pleases God. We're saved by him. We're his ambassadors. We're his slaves in some respect. We're his children is another way it describes it. Slave in a good sense of he is a good master. We're his to do what he calls us to do. And he tells us what he wants us to do how he wants us to worship him, beyond just the formal sense. It involves the whole of our lives devoted to what pleases him. Ultimately, this is through Christ. Look at verse 6. Now God outlines what worship looks like to him. 
Now, this is not a passage condemning outward displays. Don't misunderstand at all. This passage is not condemning outward displays of devotion that we're called by Scripture to do, the things we do. We pray, we preach the Word, and you listen to the Word, and we stand, and we kneel, and we do all these things. This is not a passage that condemns any of it, but rather it's challenging the authenticity of those things based on the way we live the rest of our lives or what we strive for in the rest of our lives. What is our heartbeat in the rest of our lives? That's the challenge for us. That's what this is pressing. And so with that context in mind, look at verse 6. Using this fast that the people had come to him with, is not this the fast that I choose? So now he's going to lay out what he really wants from the people. The fast that he wants is to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke, to treat people right, to care for people, free people who are burdened, help them with their oppression, have compassion for them, empathize for them, care for them. See, the fast, I believe, is he wants them to fast from themselves. Why don't you for a moment not think about yourself and think about someone suffering? That's the fast I want. I want you to fast from your selfish indulgences, your self-satisfaction, your self-motivation, your self-enriching. I want you to fast from that for a little bit, and I want you to worry about the people that can't take care of themselves, that are struggling under something that has beset them, and they need help. That's what he's saying. That's the kind of fast he wants. Verse 7, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? This is an interesting verse, verse 7. What does it mean, not to hide yourself from your own flesh? And the commentators, they're not split, but there's discussion about what does he mean here? Well, we know at the basic level, um, the people of God, um, now going into exile, a lot of transition is happening. So people in their own uh, people group would certainly qualify for their own flesh. But normally, flesh is used in the Old Testament to describe something wider, mankind in many cases. Now, we know from the, Old Te- from the New Testament standpoint that the people of God, when there's n- needs to be met, we should meet them in the body of Christ first, then look to our communities and look outside of them. I think this is the challenge to every person who says they're born again, who says they're God's people, to look at your own flesh, look at humankind and find ways in which we can be used to relieve the suffering of those people. Yes, starting in the household of God and then working from where God's placed us in community and then from there. Now, we live in a place that kind of has an illusion. I can tell you, uh, maybe you know of the kinds of needs we have here around our church, and then by members, the diversity of our members, where you reach in your homes, where you know of needs that come up. But there are a lot more needs here than you think. It kind of gets covered over by money and stuff and affluence. But the reality is, on a regular basis, we have people come to the church asking for things that you would think uh, in poor areas they would be asking for, but they can't keep their power on and they're a subdivision over. I mean, there are, there's need everywhere. And for whatever reason, they find themselves in this. There's real need, and it gets really desperate, and it happens even in our own midst. I mean, one of the reasons we are grateful for an opportunity to participate in, like, the food pantry at New Hope is that it's one tangible way we could be sure uh, that we're, we're doing everything we can, and there's way more we could be doing, but everything we can and know, that's known to us to help make sure that people don't go hungry in our community. We should be part of that effort. If we're really believers, that should be a no-brainer for us. It should be any pause about it. 
Uh, and so that's one of the ways. I love what Leanne said when she was describing the people care ministry. They're making sure this group of people feels called to make sure the rest of us know what we know we all need to know. How can we help those in our midst who are struggling, especially those who are out of sight because they can't come? I mean, these are all just absolute natural. You should be saying to yourself, yeah, of course, pastor, that's nothing. That's what I hope you feel like, and I hope we're doing that. I mean, even something as global, or in our case, national, is having an opportunity just to help in a small way with gifts, giving stuff to people who are displaced. I hope our heart on the matter is not all judgment about, oh, I hope this all gets used right. I hope that's not what we stop and think about, because most of what you have, you don't use right. Same with me. I got a lot of waste going on. So why am I so worried about a bucket getting wasted somewhere else when I got enough waste in my house to fill up 10 buckets that somebody else could use? We got to get kind of real about this stuff. I think we're getting real, right? We have to have hearts of mercy if we believe the gospel. And if we want the gospel to go forward in power, one of the greatest ways we can do is have a life of full worship, which is, part, is partly in this kind, of, kind of, this kind of effort. In fact, that's exactly where the text turns. Look at verse 8. What is the result of this? Then, when you have this kind of fast, when you show this kind of devotion, when you show this kind of worship, then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. So a light will go forth from us, and we'll experience healing within our own midst on levels that God only knows. Your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. We want everybody on this earth to glorify God. We know they can only do so if they know Christ. And one of the ways they'll come to know the message we preach is real is when we show them the love of Christ with physical means, if that's what comes up. And here's the thing about physical stuff. I used to get, uh, I did a lot of inner city ministry work when I was at Moody. And I at first went in there a little bit subject or to the thinking of, well, we really just need to preach the gospel or we're not doing them any good. I agree, we need to. But here's the thing. If you're hurting, if you're addicted, or if you're under some kind of oppression or some kind of abuse, it's hard to think about eternity when you could barely stand temporary. It's just very difficult. I mean, you and I know when you get an ache or a pain, I mean, I get, a, I get aches and pains even more and more every, every, every year now, especially since my 40th birthday. For all of you who are, it, it goes down right at about that point. And every ache and pain, it's like it dominates me. It's like I got, I got this thing in my hip that hurts, and all I can think about when I'm walking from point, I mean, what a wimp, but that's the way I feel sometimes. Imagine if you had a real pain, that's all you can think about. Well, helping to try to relieve it is not just for the end all to relieve it, but it's so that it, could, it wouldn't be a distraction, so the message of the gospel makes clearer sense. That, that's the reason. Um, there's such brokenness because of sin. It affects in all these ways. In judging how it got there isn't our call. We just try to help with it. Apply the truth. Apply compassion. But do what we can to help relieve it. And then when we do this, the beauty of it is that the light shines and there's an openness to hear the eternal message that they need so badly that they may not know because they're so encumbered by whatever physical's going on. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn. If those, if those of you who know Nathan Clark George's music know that he wrote an album with the name uh, Rise in the Darkness, and it's, he has a song that's on Isaiah 58. It basically puts what we've read to song. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. When we understand the holistic nature of a life of worship, there is an unleashing of God's witness in the world around us. Look at verse 9. Then you shall call, and the Lord, the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you 
Take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. I understand the frustration people have in our country about a misuse of monies uh, for welfare purposes and all these things. But if we would just get that out of our mind for a moment and recognize how dark that has made the world, it's against that darkness that Christians, all the more, must be the ones giving, must be the ones serving, must be the ones sacrificing. we got to get over our material stuff in the distribution of it. I know, it's frustrating. But it's all God's anyways. And so if we would just be sensitive among believers, take care of those in our midst who need it, and then look for ways in our connections to meet those needs, and then look for ways that God calls us to join in and be faithful about that, be compassionate about that, I'm convinced that will give Christians a real voice in this world, a real influence, a real opportunity for the message we preach to be heard. Verse 11. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of of streets to dwell in. What a picture that is painted for us of what God will do as his people fast in the way he chooses, offering the whole of our lives as a sacrifice of devotion to him. Ray Ortland writes a commentary on this section of Isaiah, and he says, something wonderful that challenges me, and I hope it does you. Do you want God to answer your prayers? Be his answer to someone else's prayers. Do you want God to come in his immediacy and say to you, here I am? Then get close to someone who needs you, to, needs you and say, here I am. I referred to Luke chapter 4 earlier when Jesus read the scroll. There's something that happens amazing in the chapter before. There's something amazing that happens in every chapter of the Gospels. But in chapter 3, it's John the Baptist on the scene, and he is fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy about the voice who cries in the wilderness. He's a throwback Old Testament prophet. In fact, he really is, an old, he is just like an Old Testament prophet. After 400 years of silence, after Malachi closes, there's no prophetic voice, and then, then he raises up John in the wilderness, the voice in the wilderness. And he comes to prepare the people of God for the coming of Christ. Now, that's an important uh, disclaimer, the people of God. He came to Israel not unchurched people, people who had the scripture, who had the prophecies of Isaiah, many of whom knew what the message was, but had gotten encumbered with the world around them. Now Rome was overtaking them. It wasn't Babylon now, it was Rome. They're waiting for some kind of liberation. They're only thinking about physical liberation. And he comes with a message of repentance. It says in Luke chapter 3, verse 3, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's reminding them of what the message always has been, that you must be sorry for the sins you've committed. You must turn unto God for his salvation. I mean, that's the message that John is preaching to prepare Jesus' full ministry, the ministry where he would actualize or ratify the covenant of grace in his own blood. So John's preparing them. Now, as he's preaching this message, it's starting to stir up people. They're hearing the message. Church people. 
And many of them are responding, and they're wanting to align themselves with the message. That's what the baptism part refers to. And so they're coming to him in droves because they're saying, yes, we repent. We recognize what you're saying is true. We believe in Jehovah. We believe in his Messiah. We believe in it. Well, towards, after some time, we're not told how long, um, Pharisees start coming out to be baptized and some others with him. And in classic John the Baptist form, he looks at these religious people, of all religious people, and he says in verse 7 of Luke chapter 3, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized. We know in Matthew many were Pharisees. He said, therefore, to the crowd that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? How's that for a welcome to church? You brood of vipers, who brought you here to get this baptism, to be aligned with this message? Who warned you about the wrath that's coming? And the picture is a brush pile. You light it on fire and wildlife starts running out. Rabbits first, mice and so forth. The last creatures, apparently, to come out of the brush pile are the snakes because they're trying to get out of the fire. You brood of vipers, you heard heard that judgment's coming and you're running out trying to find out how to get away from it. You've known the message, but you've denied it. These are religious people. They knew what the gospel was. So, upon hearing this, there's groups within the crowd, they feel convicted by what he says. And this is what I'm drawing your attention to. The gospel message is understood. It's already been preached. He's saying, Believe it, repent from your sins and turn. Now look what he says. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. If you truly say you believe, show fruit of it. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham our father. Don't claim to yourself you're born in church, so therefore you're saved. What are the fruits of your repentance? So three different groups say speak up. And the crowds generally say to him, what should we do then? And look what he says. Join a committee at church. No, that's not what he says at all. He says, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food, do likewise. So a fruit of your repentance, a fruit of your true salvation is that you're going to go help people who are struggling. Then tax collectors, the most hated of the group, because they get their money by extorting over against what the Romans say they should get. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Have no part in oppressing other people. Have no part in cheating other people. Get as far away from that as you can. In fact, do the opposite. Help those people. Then to soldiers. That's an interesting group, because in Rome, soldiers had wide liberties after they were discharged. They could take land for themselves. They did so by force oftentimes. They would uh, take property for themselves to live on, and no one would mess with the soldiers. And so soldiers ask him, and what shall we do? They already heard what the crowd should do, what the tax collector should do. What should we do? He said to them, extort no money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. You don't have to take from others. Don't steal from others. I bring this up to you to show you the unity of the scripture's message, that the fruits of genuine devotion and worship will show themselves in the whole of our life, especially how we treat others. Again, I close with the words of Smart. One of the unique features of biblical faith is that there is no genuine relation with God that is not at the same time a relation with the brother. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Dear Lord, give us hearts devoted fully to you and your mission. Give us boldness with your gospel and compassion with our concern and care for others. 
Lord, we want to be genuine. We know that there is a struggle with selfishness in each of us. Lord, at the same time, we confess with deep affection that we are grateful for what Christ has done for us on the cross. We want to honor you. We want to show fruit bearing uh, in, with our profession of faith, that it's a true sign of our repentance, our true belief in Jesus. Give us a sensitivity about this in every way that we could be sensitive. Make our light break forth like the dawn, and your healing spring up speedily to us, your people. And may your righteousness go before us, and your glory be our rear guard. Amen. Let us together respond by singing uh, hymn number 338. This is one of those songs you sing and pray at the same time.